Welcome to a new episode of the African Developers Podcast. My name is Kasir. I am your host. My guest today is Stephen Kenigbolo. He is a software engineer originally from Nigeria. He's currently working with Bcaster in Helsinki, Vanta, yeah. in Finland. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So this is actually my first face-to-face recording. So we are recording from Tallinn in Estonia. We're actually supposed to record in Helsinki last yes. week, but our <laughs> schedule, yeah. So, Steven, tell us a bit more about yourself. My name is Steven, and uh, uh, full names are Kenny Bolumea Steven. Uh, I'm a software engineer originally from Nigeria. Uh, my growing up and childhood were pretty much in different countries, mostly London, and then Nigeria, and then Ghana. I've got one brother and four sisters and i'm the first boy in my house tell us a bit more about your trajectory you've lived in at least four different countries yes tell us a bit about all those <laughs> okay so uh i started i started software engineering from a very uh weird point in my life after high school i was actually off to med school to study dentistry but wow yeah uh Unfortunately, I wasn't meant to be a doctor because I always liked video games and I was more interested in building things and hacking things than actually seeing blood. Uh, I would say my software engineering career started from a very young age. Uh, Apart from video games, I remember when I was quite young in Nigeria, there was something about trying to browse for free. And I started learning about configurations and networking from tweaking mobile access points on mobile phones in order to get my phone to browse for free. Uh, this was probably like 13 or maybe 10 years ago or 12 years ago. And that's where the, the zeal came. So I, I literally left med school and I packed my bags and said, I was going back to Ghana and I was going to study IT. Everyone said I was crazy. Uh, if you know the typical African homes, uh, some people thought someone had done something to me in my village, <laughs> as usual, of course. But I was hell-bent on actually doing something I actually loved. So I went to school to study IT. And it was actually in Ghana that my software engineering career started. And that's where I started building things. I was working uh, at a company called Blissprint which was a small company serving maybe three clients at the time. And all we were building was some administrative software to calculate salaries. And there was one for school management. Let me backtrack a little bit. So you move move from Nigeria to Ghana? Yeah. When was that? Uh, I went in 2010. That's when I left med school and decided to go to Ghana to study IT. Okay. So your med school was in Nigeria? Yes, my med school. I went to the University of Port Harcourt. I see. And I did basic dentistry for one year and then afterwards I left to Delta State University where I entered for physiology and pharmacology and I was there also for one year uh, before I decided to call it quits on the medical career and go after doing what I love. Why Ghana specifically? Because it's my home too. I see, How, how so? My, my my family history is a little bit complicated, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do have roots uh, in Nigeria and also in Ghana. Uh, Ghana a bit on my grandmother's side, so mm-hmm. yeah. 
Okay. So that's something we have in common. Not that I have relatives in Ghana, but I actually spe- also spent some time in Ghana and actually did my undergrad in yeah. in Ghana, yeah. So you moved to Ghana to do what exactly? School or you were working directly? Oh no, I actually I moved I moved to Ghana to study. I went to Ghana in April of 2010. I went back, but I started I only started studying in October 2010 uh, and mostly that was because I wanted to find a school where I would actually get what I needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I took a while to actually figure it out. So which, yeah. which school did you end up going to? I went to Radford University and mostly because of one Indian professor that I had. <laughs> uh, he, he was he was Ghanaian, mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Ansong. He, he was Ghanaian, but he had studied in India and his ideas about software and building IT products was actually what uh, took me there. Everything I know about C and C++ came from that man. Uh, so, so after Radford, um, I went back uh, to Nigeria, where, of course, I had previously worked with uh, my uncle, mm-hmm. who owned the cyber cafe. So, I had worked. I had, I had learned networking there after doing high school time and even doing med school time. So, I went back uh, afterwards to do my national service in Nigeria. But when I returned to Nigeria, what I found out was uh, it wasn't the, the country I knew. It was in the country I'd spent almost ten years, uh, from two thousand to two thousand and ten. Uh, it was uh, it was something else. Uh, it had changed, and uh, not in a good way. When I went to national service, I spent three months, three weeks in the camp, and then I was drafted to go to a secondary school to teach. Uh, tell me more about the Nigerian national service thing, because I think it's not something that every country has. I know Ghana has it, Nigeria has it. Most francophone countries, for example, don't have it. So tell us a bit more about that. Uh, so it's it's a it's a it's a year of voluntary service. It's well, it's compulsory, but you're just you're volunteering to I actually. See. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. so it, it's mandatory that you have to go to uh, the national service, but uh, you're not necessarily a, you're not an employee okay. of the federal government. Of course, you get paid, but you get paid some stipends. Basically, it works pretty much like you have military service here. Oh, uh, the difference is that. Uh, you are sent to a training camp for three weeks, and there you learn about military drills, um, about marching, living in maybe campfires, bonfires, and uh, a lot of other surviving skills. Mm. Uh, also, there are a lot of um, personal skills to teach and handcraft skills to teach, because I remember doing my national service, some people could actually learn about baking, Mm. Uh, some people were taught how to make clothes. Uh, basically, for those who were entrepreneurial, there was a, a path to actually get get you down there. So you have three weeks of training. Yes. And then what happens afterwards? And then you're like military, you're deployed, but uh, they, they call it you're being posted. Okay. Yeah, but uh, you're you're sent to actually go to your place of primary assignment. I see. And, and that could be teaching somewhere yeah. or an internship at a company. Uh, mostly, it's mostly teaching, unfortunately. Oh, I see. Uh, it's mostly teaching for the those who with the medical background mostly mm-hmm. are sent to the hospitals. Okay. Almost every other person is sent to teach. So I think in in that sense, it's a bit different from the Ghanaian one. From I could be wrong, but from what I know, the Ghanaian one, you don't have the three weeks of uh, military yes, training. Yes, yes, you don't. You don't have that. You, you're yes. just posted somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you go for national service. Yeah. Uh, I I actually was supposed to do the national service in Ghana, but <laughs> then I was told that if I if I had any plans whatsoever to have any sort of life in Nigeria, mm-hmm. then I had to go back to Nigeria to do it. 
uh, on getting there, I realized that I had no plans <laughs> to actually be in Nigeria because of the way the country that it wasn't the country that I knew initially. So yeah, but the national service scheme it's um, it's a good it's a good one. And it's called NYSC. NYSC National Service Corps. Yeah. Okay. I was posted to a school in River State um, at the boundary between River State and Bielsa. It was a secondary school. And I was sent there to teach computer science. And on getting to the school, I found out that there were no labs. The children had never seen a computer. The classroom had no windows. Uh, there were no ceilings. It was a shock. My mother had warned me uh, before going there. She did tell me that, listen, uh, things are not the way you think they are. Uh, you have lived in most of the cities, so... Uh, you have no idea how things could be in other places. And this was surprising for me because I actually went to high school in my village. Uh, wow. Of course, it was a federal government college, but I had seen in my own village how education was, and it wasn't bad. It wasn't mm -hmm. that bad. Mm -hmm. So going to another part and seeing what I saw, I, it was something I couldn't deal with. Uh, my first day there when I had to go to class, I literally took my computer down there and you could see the joy and excitement in the eyes of the kids and them being able to touch a computer for the first time. Uh, I left and I, I went home and I cried and then I told my mother that I, I wasn't going back there anymore. Uh, that was the end of my national service actually. Wow. Because I, I, couldn't, I couldn't believe, I found it difficult to believe that um, in, in a country, and I thought I knew so well, mm -hmm. that there were actually kids who literally had never seen or touched a computer. I, I, so it, it gave me the impression that uh, the system is rigged against them. Mm -hmm. So so that's that's pretty much how I decided to leave. Um, I had gotten a scholarship to do a master's uh, at the University of Tartu at that time. What well, University of Tartu, where is that? Uh, here in Estonia. In Estonia, okay. Yeah. okay. Uh, I'd gotten a scholarship to do a master's here, a master's in software engineering, but... I hadn't decided at that time. I, I actually was thinking of deferring it and coming the next year. But after the experience doing my national service in the school, I went back home, packed my bag, and then I came to Estonia. Okay. Why Estonia? Uh, actually, to be honest, it was pretty much because of Skype. Oh. Yeah. So for, for those of you who don't know, Skype was created in Estonia. And Estonia is known as one of the... How do you call it? So they have the the highest number of startups yeah. per capita. Per capita, yeah. It's a very small country. Estonia has a population of 1.3 million, but they have a lot of startups for those 1.3 million people. They have, and a lot of recognizable startups. So Taxify is from Estonia. Skype was created here. Uh, TransferWise, also from here. And there are lots of other companies that yeah. are more B2B that yeah, people B2, don't yeah, know yeah. about, but uh, a lot of huge companies here. There's, I think there's like a Pipe Drive, for example, mm -hmm. that's also a big one. Yeah. Uh, there's Fonda Beam. So you, okay, so you applied to university in Estonia because you knew about Skype. Yeah, uh, actually, uh, it was it was very funny, but uh, so the, 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 the way it started was I went to Google mm -hmm. and then I said, okay, I was going to do a quick search. So I was looking for master's in software engineering uh, because I wanted a master's in software engineering itself. Uh, the problem was that, as most people would know, there are not a lot of master's in software engineering programs in the entire world. Mm -hmm. There are very few and far in between. Uh, one of the reasons why I actually, after finding out Estonia, was 
the home of Skype. Uh, there was actually an option to go back to London, mm-hmm. but I didn't want to go back to London, mostly because I didn't want to have student debt for the next <laughs> 10 years. <laughs> of course, uh, if you for those those people who actually have a background uh, or actually have roots in the UK, it's something that we can all share. The fact that education is quite expensive and Interesting. Uh, to get quite good education. Is so, so I would have thought that, so we all know education in the United States is expensive, like crazy expensive. So the, the opposite is usually Europe. People think Europe is quite cheap and yeah. oftentimes free. I didn't yeah. realize that the UK was actually quite expensive as well. Oh, oh, uh, you can pay as much as twelve thousand pounds a year. That's a lot <laughs> of UK, money. Yeah. yeah, in the US you can think fifty thousand, hundred thousand, yeah. but ten thousand pounds—that's that's actually a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, wow. Some schools fix. I, I think I had a, I had an admission to actually do a, a master's in advanced computer science mm-hmm. at the University of. I I think it was Birmingham. Yeah, at the University of Birmingham, and the fees. For international students at that time, uh, if I recall correctly, were around thirteen thousand pounds, and then for European, those of us who were European residents, mm-hmm. uh, the fees at that time were around eight to nine thousand pounds. So if you do a master's, for example, two years, that's eighteen thousand quid. Damn. Yeah, that, that's that is a lot of money. Exactly. So yeah. I just I wanted something that was more in mainstream Europe where I didn't have to spend so much money to actually get good education. And then after finding out about Skype and the program at the University of Tartu, I also discovered that the University of Tartu was actually the best university in the Baltics. So that was also, it was also a strong motivation. and I think I think it's the biggest university in Estonia. Oh yes, it's uh, it's the first first university and the biggest university in Estonia. Yeah. It's actually also the old, oldest, I think, I see. here in Estonia. But when you put the Baltic countries together, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, uh, University of Tartu is the the be- and the highest, most highest ranked university. So I see. I thought it was a it was a good uh, good opportunity. So I also did a little bit of digging and found out about a professor called Madame Dumas. Who is among the top three percent cited software engineers in the in the entire world? Wow! Yeah, he he was the program manager at that time. So I exchanged emails with him, and I was super convinced it was it was the right choice. <laughs> of course, there was a scholarship, so it was free, which was an added benefit. But the school itself was a perfect uh, perfect balance for me at that point. Yeah. Cool. So then you you moved to Estonia. How was that transition? Oh, that transition wasn't so easy. Uh, <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> that transition wasn't so easy. Uh, I actually, I got to Estonia, I think, on the hottest day of 2015. It was a day in August. So my entry was quite, in my opinion, easy, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the weather was quite okay. When I got here, uh, I had a friend from Ghana, Collins. Nice. Uh, he was already, he, we were, we, we're starting together, but he had already arrived about uh, four days before I did. So when I got to Tartu, he picked me up from the bus station, took me to my dorm. On getting to my dorm, I found out I was, my roommate was uh, an Ethiopian. So it was more like welcome home, you mm-hmm, know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I felt, I felt quite easy at home until the next day. Then I actually started facing what, you know, 
Estonia really was. Okay. Tell, but, tell us a bit a bit more about that. Well, uh, uh, I, I've always been a curious person, right? And I've grown up in environments where you're always allowed to explore, mm-hmm. right? Uh, if you take, let's say, back in London, uh, it's quite easy to go anywhere and not have people stare at you. Where, come on, take yeah. Brixton, for example. Every every ne- every second, third person you see in Brixton is black, you yeah. know. Uh, if you go, say you go to like East London, for example, East Croydon, uh, you will find out that almost everyone you meet is actually, almost every second, third person is either African or Caribbean, you know. So uh, coming to Tartu and uh, the next day walking the entire city and finding out that I was pretty much the only black person out that entire day. Every single place I went, people were staring at me. Uh, <laughs> it was it was quite shocking. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I had the same experience. Um, so Estonia is the first European country I am living in. And I had to adjust. The fact that every time you go out, you're the only black person around. Or you're mostly the only black person. I think yeah. in my company, too, I'm, I'm the only black person in my company. And that is a difference between Estonia and Finland, for example. Because I think in Finland, Finland is a lot more diverse. Yeah, right? I think... Uh, Finland has been, well, it's it's a little bit more about the history. Mm-hmm. Uh, Estonia has obviously been under occupation for a long time. Yeah, by the Soviet, Soviet former yeah, Soviet Union. Yeah. yeah. So uh, for Finland, Finland has been very independent for a very long time. So, mm-hmm. and uh, Finland has had black people way as way back as maybe the nineties. You know, um, I think in the nineties. In Estonia, it was almost impossible to see a black person. Yeah. In Finland, black people were already rampant in the 90s. And you go to the UK, for example, with the Windrush uh, generation in the 60s and 50s. Yeah. That's pretty much how my grandfather moved to the UK anyways. And, I see. But yeah, for Estonia, it's been a, dif- a bit different. So that I think that was, for me, the most shocking experience of my life. I had been in Singapore where people said, can I touch your hair? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, yeah. In 2008, actually, in Singapore, people wanted to touch my hair because for some reason, they didn't see a lot of Africans that much. Yeah. You know, and that was, for me, that was okay because they were doing it in a more curious and friendly way. Okay. And you could have, yeah. More, more, more out of ignorance, not yeah. out of malice. Exactly. Yeah. But, but in Estonia, when I got here, it, it you could actually see people looking at you and the looks were more like, what the hell are you doing here? You know, and then you start thinking, but, but uh, all in all, I think it was just, it was just, it was new for me to get that kind of experience. So it was a bit worrisome, but immediately I got adjusted and used to it. I actually stopped giving rats about all of that. Uh, I pretty much just moved on with my life. Yeah. And you, you learn to focus, like to yeah. ignore all of that yeah, stuff, yeah, that and, and focus, focus on more important things. And yeah. I think that that way I, I actually got to found, find out that uh, a lot of Estonians are super nice people, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, the moment you get to know them, it, they're, they're fantastic people. Yeah. Uh, some yeah. of the some of the friends I have here in Estonia are probably still going to be my friends for life. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. That's something I, I experienced, too. Like, from the, from the outside, they seem a bit cold. Yeah, but like once you strike a conversation and you start getting to know them, they are very friendly people. Oh yeah, Estonians are—they're they're very friendly, and they're even more fun when there's alcohol in play. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, after 
a beer, then the, the real Estonian actually comes out, and I you see. see that they're very cheerful people. Nice, yeah. nice. So, how how long did you spend in Tartu? Uh, I was in Tartu from uh, Sept okay, August two thousand and fifteen until uh, until this okay until uh, June. Mm-hmm. 2016 and then June 2016 until September I was in Barcelona what what were you doing in Barcelona actually I was working I moved to Barcelona to work um but it wasn't it wasn't more like it wasn't more like I was living there full time mm-hmm. so um after I got to Tartu um after the first uh 3 months uh, in December I decided that I needed to get back to building software, mm-hmm. so I started applying for uh, jobs. But I wanted something that wasn't hard to, so I could combine with my studies. Problem was that there were not a lot of startups in Tartu at that time. Uh, there were very few roles open, but I was, uh, I, I would say, I'm amongst a lot of other very skilled. Engineers who also wanted openings, I guess I, I managed to get uh, one of the very few spots, uh, which at that time was a big deal because uh, it was almost impossible getting jobs in Tartu. Uh, I started working at Greenhouse. Uh, now it's called Nevercode. Oh, I know Nevercode. They're yeah. in Tartu, right? Yes, yes. So the reason why I know them, I so I started writing apps in Flutter. Flutter, Flutter yeah, Flutter, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And they created a product for continuous integration. Yeah, exactly for yeah, Flutter. Yeah. So they, they were actually announced at the Google IU, the Google conference yeah, yeah. for Flutter recently. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the first time I heard of them, they were announced as this company from Estonia. So then I went yeah. to their website and I saw that they were from Tartu actually. Yeah, we we it st- we started off as Greenhouse, um, with which actually a very small team. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were just uh, four of us. So how how long were you at Nevercode? Uh, for nine months actually. Okay. Uh, I worked. I started working with them in January of two thousand and sixteen. That was three months after I got to Estonia, and I worked with them until uh, June, and then I took uh, an unpaid leave uh, to go to Barcelona mm-hmm. uh, because I wanted to transition into Ruby oh. uh, development. So. I took. Uh, I went for a short course for a month, uh, but I also I got to the course, and it felt like it wasn't right because I I had this feeling that uh, maybe I would be better off actually teaching them than uh, it, it was more for people with no programming experience. For me, it just didn't add right. So I left and decided to actually go try my hands at the European Innovation Academy. What's that? Uh, so the European Innovation Academy, it's, um, it's some kind of entrepreneurial school that's run for two weeks. And the idea is that in those two weeks, you take a product from an idea to actually not just an MVP, but a proper working product. You're surrounded with some of the brightest minds from Silicon Valley anyway. So you, there's, you have every, you, you're, you're presented with almost everything to actually get through it. Like uh, it's possible. That, of course, the end goal is to actually produce an MVP. But uh, the difference is that it's a working MVP, not just some flashcards and how it should work. But you can actually demo how it works. So mm-hmm. I went there and I basically built a uh, uh, shipping management app. Uh, so it was a logistic based uh, web platform. 
built from scratch with Ruby that I had no idea about but needed to transition to, so it was more like a good challenge. Uh, in two weeks, uh, we built it and we actually won that, uh, we won that series. Uh, we were the 2016 EIA winners with the shortcut. Um, unfortunately, I didn't stay for the closing ceremony. Uh, of course, I, I'm always moving, so, uh, before the closing ceremony, I quickly wanted to stop by to see my sister, uh, back in Italy, so. I left, but I got the information and everything. I, it was good that we actually won because it was a lot of hard work. And as uh, one of very few Africans on the team, it was super nice to actually see that uh, a team that was le- a team where the engineering part of it was pretty much done by an African actually won the European Innovation Academy in 2016. Uh, so that 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 was pretty much that was pretty much it for that phase. And then I returned back. Um, to greenhouse never code mm-hmm. uh, I returned back and I stayed all through August until September and then I left in September uh, and then I moved to Barcelona back to Barcelona because I basically got an offer to lead a new product uh, it was called Lumumba so if for people who are from DRC <laughs> they would probably know that name but it, the company had nothing to do with DRC or Lumumba it was just a company that basically was founded on um, African ideals. Uh, it was run pretty much by all Spanish people. I was the only uh, black person on the team. Uh, but the idea was to build a, an e-commerce web platform where African branded uh, clothes are actually marketed and also put into the major chains. And it wasn't just African, it was basically multicultural fashion. So it uh, could be from India, it could be from Bangalore, could be from Ghana. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the CEO of the company at that time had actually spent some time in Ghana. Oh, yeah, he, he did a, he did a one year in Ghana and uh, when he tried to break into the fashion industry, he, he met the dean of the uh, faculty of fashion in Radford. Yeah, he met her there, and so when he basically said that, ah, yeah, he met this guy, and he seems to have graduated from Radford, and she was like, yeah, yeah, probably he was one of our best in that sense. So <laughs> we we worked together uh, for the rest of 2016, uh, from September until December, uh, when the product launched. Um, my my task there was pretty much creating from scratch this web platform because uh, the company had outsourced it to some Indians and no disrespect to Indians, but uh, they did a really horrible job with it. So on getting there, it was, there were two ways. It was either I decided to maintain this kick PHP code or I try my new skills in Ruby and Build it from scratch. Build from scratch. And I think building from scratch was obviously the better idea. And we went through that. Uh, we built it. It was a tight deadline, but we managed to get it out into the market. Uh, during my time there, I actually hired a, a Nigerian software engineer also uh, who worked with me on contract for two months. Uh, at the time, he was a fellow in Andela, I think. Oh, I see. Yeah. Uh, Godwin, that was his name. He was a fellow in Andala and he came in and of course did a, a good job with us. So yeah, 
But after that, then I left Barcelona back. Back to Estonia again? Yeah. Okay. So uh, basically, in December, when I decided to move back, I was looking for companies with uh, a bright vision, a small team, and uh, a brand new product where I could actually build because uh, I had been working with Ruby at that time for just about a year, and I wanted... I wasn't ready to get into Ruby legacy code, so I wanted to be at places where I would feel comfortable actually digging uh, right from the start. So I was looking for startups, and then I found out about Verif. Uh, so in December, Verif, Verif is a company here in Estonia, right? Yes, uh, okay. Verif is uh, a company based here in Estonia uh, with of- with an office at the moment. There's, there's a, an office in the US in Silicon Valley, but uh, the base of operations is down here in, in Estonia. I see. They're a very recognizable name because they were into Y Combinator. They got into Y Combinator. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, and I, at that time, I was still actually there. Um, it, it was one of the success stories. And when I look back at my time in Verif, mm-hmm. uh, I'm I'm super proud of what uh, a small team of three engineers managed to actually accomplish. Uh, so, so what does what does Verif do? Uh, so uh, in Verif, basically, uh, the whole concept of this uh, product that's being built and sold is uh, about online verification. Of identity. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, so basically making sure that you are who you say you are. Uh, and it doesn't matter if you're doing that behind a computer or behind a mobile phone. Uh, we just make sure that you are who you say you are. The interesting and, concept. Yeah, uh, the idea was to, as much as reduce fraud rates, uh, it also involved helping uh, customers actually fulfill their KYC requirements. What's KYC? Uh, know your customer. Okay. Yeah. So uh, we started, uh, when I joined, uh, there were just two engineers who had been there less than a year or so. And they came in and obviously initially the product was outsourced. So they came in and started writing from scratch. So pretty much I joined at the, I joined at the time when everything was still basic. It was still getting done. And then, yeah, we basically, they had rewritten, uh, the outsourced one and they created a new version so I got in right on time to actually start with this and then we built it uh, it was a combination of uh, different uh, very different tasks but the beauty of it was that it, it brought me back to JavaScript again because <laughs> uh, uh, ever since I think since I left Ghana in 2014 I hadn't done JavaScript anymore and then uh, getting back uh, in 2017 you know, and having to do with JavaScript also, again, it was quite, quite interesting. At that time, of course, we weren't doing React. I think we were working with Aurelia. Oh, yeah. Yeah, at the time. Aurelia. Yeah. But yeah, it was, it was, it was an interesting perspective, uh, especially for me as a software engineer, uh, coming from a, a C and C++ background, transitioning to JavaScript, doing Ruby, and then going back to JavaScript again. It was, it was a very enriching experience. Uh, and the beauty of the team, at that time, was that uh, we were three. Uh, the other two were German and Georgian, so it was quite international. And yeah, it was more of a situation where iron sharpened iron, so we were all helping each other to improve and yeah. uh, get better at what we do. 
So that's that's one of the things I like about Estonia. Like if you're working in a company as a software developer, there's a high probability that your team is very diverse. Yeah. So me for example, uh we have four on my team. Two of them are from Ukraine, there's one guy from France, and then there's me from a lot of places. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Estonia has, has kind of opened their doors to high skilled people. So they have a lot of developers from countries all over the world. Yeah. Yeah. True. Uh, I totally agree because uh, even when I think back at Nevercode, uh, we were four, but two of us, so half of the team mm-hmm. in, the, in terms of the, the engineering team, half of us were actually foreigners because I wasn't from Estonia and Nick also wasn't from Estonia. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So then you were at Very for how long? I was at Very for a year and three months, okay. uh, basically. Uh, I stayed there and uh, we, built, we, we built the software where every time we look back, I think... Uh, uh, and the three of us, uh, if we look back, we can be really proud of uh, the job we actually accomplished in, in such a short time. Uh, I think uh, when we were still uh, either in November uh, or actually in December last year, uh, sorry, in 2017, December, uh, when we act, I don't know, there are a lot of articles about the, uh, how we got into Y Combinator and all of that, so you can... Uh, I can probably link to some of, yeah, those, articles to some of those articles in the show notes. Okay, awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but uh, in 2010, I, uh, 2017, sorry, December, I was uh, at the airport. I think this is actually on my, uh, it's actually on my my, my Instagram. I, I was at the airport and I was doing some work. And then I got the call from Yane, who is uh, the CEO. And he said, June, I'm going to tell you something. And he said, what? You know that? thing you just did and i said yeah because i had screamed like fuck yeah like hell yeah i I was working so i was sitting down at the airport and i was working on some code but it wasn't it wasn't giving me the desired output of course i missed something so when i figured it out and it worked i basically screamed hell yeah at the airport and everyone turned and looked at me so i basically put up a picture on on instagram and uh, and then a ceo called me and said uh i'm going to tell you to say that thing you just said again and I said, why? And then he said, we got into work company. I'm like, what wow. the fuck? <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But it was, um, it was quite a fulfilling moment. So for me, this was, uh, this was the, I would say the highlight of the entire time we spent in Verif. Uh, hearing that we got into work combinator was like super nice. Was Verif your last experience in, in Estonia or there was something after that? No, Verif was the last one in Estonia. Actually. Okay. Yeah. And uh, if I had my way, I wouldn't have left. Okay. Because. So what happened? Why'd you leave? Uh, my wife happened, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Uh, well, feel free to tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, 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 sure. Uh, at that time, uh, my wife and I were expecting. So. We thought about it uh, a little bit and decided that it didn't make any sense to actually raise a child cross border. I see. So your yeah. wife is from Finland. Yeah, my wife is Finnish, and I was I was living in Estonia. Yeah. So uh, it just it, it wasn't really a thing, right? And, and Verif wouldn't have had a problem with uh, working remotely, but I think at that time in the team uh, they needed someone who would actually be at the office, yeah. uh, especially due to the fact that a lot of new uh, people were being employed. So 
uh, if you needed to work and needed, they would need someone there to ask questions. So I felt it wasn't fair yeah. to actually uh, want to do that. Mm. So I stayed. I stayed until March. Yeah, but uh, moving to Finland uh, and expecting a child uh, that meant that I couldn't be without a job. So obviously, I I applied for a role at uh, Bicaster where I currently work. Uh, I went to the office for the interview, and the guys were like, literally, I got to the office, had a few discussions with them, and I knew that I definitely wanted to work here. Nice. Uh, yeah, I had I had no doubts <laughs> about it. So, yeah. Okay, so what what does Bicaster do again? So Bicaster basically it's a platform that um, handles user generated content. Um, it, it's a bi-directional uh, kind of company which serves both uh, B2B and B2C customers. So um, the 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 product uh, is tailored uh, towards the the two different uh, customer segments. Uh, what is being sold to the uh, B2C is a little bit different from what has been sold to the B2B. But basically, we offer you a possibility to actually monetize your media, um, have detailed air analysis on your media, you know, uh, have uh, user-generated content based on a group of media that you could have, and you can also leverage our SDK to actually... Uh, assess uh, most of these features. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I feel like it's, it's still a bit abstract. Can you give us a, a specific example? Let's take a company with that currently, or a few companies that currently use our solution. Uh, so I will start with uh, something that's very simple uh, and typical, but probably well-known. Um, if if you have ever heard about the World Wildlife Fund. Mm-hmm. WWF. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so they are uh, the WWF in Finland are a client of Bcaster and pretty much the services we offer to them is that they are able to actually do online streaming via the mobile app. So instead of having to go to the website, you can easily just watch the stream on your phone whenever you want uh, and they're leveraging RSDK. And also it enables them to actually have uh, leveraging RSDK, uh, capturing rare moments you can actually share with the VVF community. So uh, if, for example, you see uh, a rare beaver, right, you can take a picture and this is going to be featured and they can actually confirm if this location was right. And then they can actually help because they get the location of where this picture was taken. And if this is a rare breed or something that is not usually seen, they can actually find a way to make that area protected such that, of course, uh, for them, uh, they can actually preserve the lifespan of this rare, rare breed. Interesting. Uh, also, they also have uh, they have underwater cameras, uh, which are also live streamed. Uh, and then, of course, you can also do some donations via uh, the SDK. Now, for companies like uh, festivals, for example, uh, let's take the Sideways Festival in Finland mm-hmm. that's run every summer. Uh, one of the things you want to do is that uh, during festivals sometimes you would like to get the handy uh schedule of what's going on and this is something that you would notice for example web summit does a lot right you need to have the schedule but it's the case that during this festival it's almost it's almost impossible to actually get all the media that's captured during the festival. So if you want to make, for example, a user-generated video based on different content, it's almost impossible because you have to spend 
tons and tons of time crawling different websites and different social services to gather this. Mm-hmm. Leveraging the Bcaster SDK on their mobile app, they're able to do this because uh, the incentives that you can actually give to people. Say, for example, if you capture 10 unique uh, photos, you get this prize, or that you know, you know, ten unique videos of this artist, you get this and mm-hmm. that, and it gives users the opportunity to actually want to do this. And instead of actually using hashtags and then curating based on the hashtags, they actually have this within their own app. So they basically leave it to SDK, and then they can because the uh, we provide them an opportunity to actually grade the content based on the quality of the video or image they can decide what to actually use instead of having to first do all the scraping coming back and then yeah. figuring this out one by one and mind you we're not talking about uh 10 videos or 100 videos or 1000 videos we're talking about tens of thousands of video recordings and images so great so, so, so these are just some practical examples yeah. cool what are your responsibilities at Digasta? Uh, okay. At the moment, I'm the front-end engineering team lead at Bcaster, and uh, my responsibilities uh, basically uh, encircled around making sure the front-end engineering team uh, works as a cohesive unit, uh, making sure we meet our targets, uh, making sure we meet our deadlines, and making sure all my engineers are happy. If it mean, even if it means I have to give them extra beers, but. <laughs> <laughs> Making sure all, all the engineers uh, working uh, under me and with me. I, I would not say under me. Uh, I like to think of myself as a pragmatic team lead than a boss in that sense. So I would say everyone working with me uh, is, is comfortable and feels good enough to do the job and actually deliver and are productive. I think uh, uh, these are probably what my responsibilities are. And, and this by no means actually... This does not mean that I do not write code anymore because <laughs> I, I think I write code most often than not. No. But uh, the uh, team organization and team leadership responsibilities are also another part of what I do. I see. And I think you're currently hiring? Yes, at the moment uh, we have openings for uh, senior software engineers. Uh, if you have got four years or more experience and you know, uh, you know, your stuff, you know what you do, then please feel free to uh, send me an email. Okay. Uh, I will definitely be looking forward. I will add your jobs page to the show notes for people who are interested. Yeah. Cool. So there's one question that I've I've been meaning to to discuss with someone who has the same experience. So you and I both moved from, from, okay, you moved from Nigeria, I moved from Ghana to Europe. And it's a trend that we are seeing more and more of good African developers living for greener pastures. Our brightest people all leave the continent because there are better opportunities elsewhere. Yeah. It's obviously detrimental to the continent, right? Because you're losing your brightest people. You're, you're, not, you're not gaining from their knowledge, from their experience. Um, I wanted to know your opinion on that. As someone who has made the transition, someone who has left Nigeria for Estonia and then Finland, What's your opinion on this? To be honest, I, I will be a little bit biased. Okay, um, because, biased towards, towards what? Uh, because I feel that uh, uh, in as much as uh, Africa, of course, owns me, uh, Europe also has a huge claim I see. Uh, uh, to me in the sense that uh, my, my education before high school was purely European. So my foundations were actually built here. But then um, in terms of technical knowledge, I would say it was given to me first on the African continent, first in Nigeria and then in Ghana. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So, do you feel because of that? Do you feel any responsibility towards the continent? Oh yes, I actually do feel a, a lot of responsibility uh, uh, towards the African continent. I feel uh, personally, I think that um, in in terms of myself, for example, uh, moving uh, moving back here uh, was something that was probably inevitable, and the reason uh, would would most certainly be because uh, the opportunities that I would get uh, down here, back in Europe, uh, I probably wouldn't have gotten those in the African continent. Mm-hmm. However, um, now this, this is me speaking as a European, mm-hmm. but as an African, uh, to be honest, I feel that we have a fundamental problem um, in the African tech system. And until we address those problems, we would not stop losing. Mm-hmm. Some of our best brains. Okay, and I, I can I can cite uh, practical examples. If uh, and I, I can cite practical examples with taking Europe. A few years back, let's say six seven years back, right? It was almost impossible for us to actually keep our engineers in Europe. The US literally gave us some brain drain. European companies needed to up their game to actually keep European talent because. You take Silicon Valley, for example, you can easily make 100K there. At that time, making 60K on the European continent meant like you were at the very high level in your career, right? Uh, Now, making 60K on the European continent pretty much means that you're a standard senior engineer, right? And uh, despite that fact, uh, if you go as a senior engineer, for example, you and I, can easily transition to an American company and earn about 120K every year. Uh, the reason why we wouldn't do that transition is because at this point is because we don't really see the incentive. Yes, the money might be good, but the system we have in Europe is so good that sometimes thinking about living becomes so complicated. We have a, a proper medical insurance, for example. Yeah. You know, and when you think about the cost of living in the US, you are just one you're one one health issue away from actually going broke. It yep. doesn't matter how much you earn. So uh, they have they have fixed some fundamental loopholes in their system to actually keep their talent. And if you go to com- go to countries like Germany and Finland, for example, trust me, as a senior engineer in Germany, in Germany or in Finland, it is the case that you can easily make very close to what your U.S. counterparts make because the companies here are willing to pay. Right. Uh, this this is one fundamental part. The, that the European continent has gotten right. Mm-hmm. Now, if we go back to the African continent, the truth about our industry is that a lot of the engineers have grown above the industry that we have. That's correct. That's true. Keeping them there would basically mean limiting them. Uh, so it's inevitable. If the industry grows uh, at the pace where the engineers grow, then they will be able to retain the, the engineers. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. At, the, at this point... After spending, and I will be honest with you, if you're properly trained and you're properly mentored by good engineers, after spending four or five years on the African continent, four or five years, solid years, where you know what you do and you're good at what you do, you definitely will grow above the, the industry there. And we don't have enough startups to offer CTO positions or uh, uh, engineering lead positions to these engineers. Right. So it's it's almost impossible to actually keep. So let's take a craft, for example. Right. 
you work in Accra as an engineer, four years, five years of experience, right? Not a lot of companies are going to be willing to pay you 10,000 CDs per month. But this is basically what you are at the minimum worth. Yeah. 10,000 Ghana CDs. Not a lot of companies can actually afford that. So you find yourself in a situation where you get to a point that you, you need to think what your next steps are. Do I stay and just manage with what we have here? Or do I look for things that actually suit my skill set and will actually offer better compensation? And the, 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 most often than not, it's the case that you do not want to be back there with the kind of skill set you have when people probably with lesser skill set than you are, are out there earning a lot and in way three times more than you're earning right so yeah. Yeah. The, the engineers are growing faster than the industry is growing so at the point the engineers are bigger than what the industry can offer and they definitely have to find greener pastures elsewhere yeah so, so you touch upon two very important problems which is lack of technical challenges so there aren't many startups on the continent doing interesting enough stuff that if you are uh, above a certain level of experience, you would actually enjoy working there. Yep. And then the second issue is salaries. At a certain level of experience, there aren't enough companies on the continent who can actually pay you what you're worth. Exactly. So you have, you, you have experiences where you look at other people who are less experienced than you and in other places in the world who are earning crazy amount of money. Like I had that, I had that experience where people I was working with, because they were in a different part of the world, were mm. earning a lot more than I was. The only solution that I see, and I think, uh, I think I first heard of this idea from Mark Essien, the, the CEO of Hotels.ng, who was like, there's no way of preventing brain drain. The best thing we can do is to train enough software developers on the continent that as the experienced people leave, you've created a backup. You've created more uh, and software developers. By the time they are also ready to leave, you also have another yeah, batch yeah. coming up. So it's sort of like creating a pipeline where we always have enough software engineers. So I feel like that's that's the only solution for the for the continent. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I think it's not only unethical. I think it's quite wicked to actually tell engineers to stay when you can't afford to pay them. Uh, it becomes very interesting when you work on a remote project and you lead people, say, for example, you have someone in Malta who's on your team and you have someone in the UK who's on your team and you're basically literally mentoring them. And yeah. then you get to find out the end <laughs> yeah, and a lot more five than times more than what you're paid. It, it will, it's very demoralizing. It is. Right? Yeah. So I think the, 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 the brain drain at the moment, uh, it's almost impossible, except the entrepreneurs that we have and these companies are able to bring the uh, venture capital money in, into the continent, mm -hmm. just like Europe has done. Yeah. Then they can afford to keep very good engineers. But it will be very wicked to actually say, I can't say to any friend of mine that, uh, dude, uh, just stay and manage because, uh, you know, we are African and we need to grow African. Yes, I understand patriotism, but I think there is also survival, right? And engineers should... Uh, we are not going to be around for so long. We're not going to always be at the peak of our career for the rest of our lives. So during that period, I think it's it will be quite wicked to actually say to an engineer that, oh, you need to stay back in, in Africa. I don't think this is the way forward. So let's let's talk about let's talk about technologies. What what technologies are you currently looking at that, that you are excited about? Um at the moment I would say WebAssembly. Oh. Um 
uh, because I come from a <laughs> I come from a C and C plus on the ground, and I would like the idea of being able to write uh, code in something else, okay. you know, and still have it run on the browser. So, can you explain to people what WebAssembly is? In in plain language, I would say it's probably the the next alternative to actually building web apps, mm-hmm. right? Uh, currently, if you need to, if you need your web app to run on the browser, you need a JavaScript engine, right? And this is the case. Uh, WebAssembly is actually going to change that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, say for example, if you like to write code in C sharp, you should be able to. And this is this, I believe, should be the future in software engineering. Uh, I see software engineering is supposed to be a discipline where programming is a tool of choice to solving problems. And uh, we should not be limited to specific languages to actually solve problems. It's okay when we have, say, for example, uh, give, let's say we have a, a, a machine learning problem or an AI problem. Uh, of course, you can write libraries in Ruby to actually do this, but you would want to use Python. And the reason is because Python is faster. Right, but if there is an alternative to use something else, why shouldn't you use it? Yeah. You know, so this is the same feeling I have towards uh, the web in general. Uh, I don't think the web should be limited to JavaScript, and the reason is that uh, personally, I feel that the JavaScript community has been hijacked too much by the big corporations. Uh, there's Facebook pushing React, there's Google pushing Angular. Uh, who knows who is going to push what the next time? You know, and this, for me, as an as someone who actually loves open source, of course they are all open source, but let's face reality, uh, this a product's been pushed by a, a big corporation. Uh, for me, I would rather uh, see uh, a future in web development where, regardless of uh, technology, uh, you can actually put something out there. Nice. So yeah, currently, if you want to write apps for the web for the browser you are bound to use JavaScript yep. or you're bound to use something that compiles to JavaScript, yep. transpiles to JavaScript. Okay. Yep. So WebAssembly basically removes that limitation and allows you to write code in whatever language you want and then allow it to still run in the browser. So one of the best examples of this that I saw was a software from uh, Autodesk. I think it was AutoCAD. They, they wrote it such that you could run the AutoCAD that you were running as a desktop application. Mm-hmm. You were able to run it in the browser without doing much changes. So WebAssembly allowed that. So it was a program that was written in C, I think. Yeah. And you run it through WebAssembly, you convert it to WebAssembly and you're able to run it in the browser as a native application. So that that's what the future promises, that you can take apps that you are running locally, that you're running in a desktop, desktop yeah. that are written in whatever language, language you can imagine, yeah. and then they are compiled into uh, WebAssembly. So that, that's a very promising future. Cool. So oh. I'm wondering, when you're not writing software, what, what else do you do? Uh, mostly depends. Uh, sometimes I, I'm probably uh, playing football. I haven't played football in a while now because of my knees. So uh, when I was in Estonia, for example, I, I took up coaching duties. So I was uh, coaching the ASE FC. Uh, but in Finland, when I'm not writing code, I'm usually trying to spend time with my wife. I see. Yeah. Uh, to do things because my wife being a nurse and also working a lot, uh, uh, usually during the weekends, we try to keep walk away and just spend time together. Nice. Yeah. So I think we are reaching the end of this conversation. Uh, do you have any last words, any, any things you want to plug, product that you're working on, that you want to share? 
I haven't done uh, a lot lately, but uh, I've been volunteering as an open source developer for ADSB Exchange. Uh, basically, it's a flight. Uh, it's a it's an open source flight tool where you can get uh, flight information from. And I've been uh, volunteering from there for them, building APIs and uh, tools. And at the moment, I'm I'm working on trying to rebuild the current website that they have because it looks a little bit horrible. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, I think my 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 last and final words uh, would be that uh, as engineers, we should just stop being consumers of uh, products. We should actually contribute to the the open source ecosystem. And I say this because uh, I look when I met the uh, ADBS Exchange tool, I looked at it and they are doing a fantastic job, but. People are not really helping, right? And there's a limited number of engineers. Uh, a lot of people want to help more in bigger projects like React and uh, a lot of other things that have been pushed. But there are other very important uh, projects that actually add a lot of value. Uh, you'll be surprised the amount of airports that actually filter data from ADVSB. There are a lot of flight schools, you know, but these are not the, the big projects that yeah, people... Yeah, it's not sexy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But these are also very important and I would like to encourage uh, people to also, you know, give it a shot and sometimes just try to do something non-conventional. Yeah. Great. Uh, this was fun. Yeah, thank you. For... Thank you very much for coming to the, to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure to be here today. Great. Okay. Bye. Bye. This was another episode of the African Developers Podcast. If you enjoyed this and would like to hear more, you should subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting app. We are available on Google Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, Pocket Cast, pretty much everywhere. You can also follow us on Twitter at AfroDevPodcast. See you on the next one.